1: The Telegraph.
0: Telegraph.
1: Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the latest updates from the Ukrainian counterattack in the south. We talk about the Russian telegram channels that give us a very different understanding of the conflict than state media. And we analyze questions of weapon and ammunition supply from the west to Ukraine.
2: This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong.
3: We're Ukrainians.
1: Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 5th of September. Day 194. And today, I'm joined by senior foreign correspondent Roland Oliphant, senior technology reporter Gareth Caulfield, and, calling in live from Westminster, our Whitehall editor, Tony Diver. Before our daily updates, however, it's been quite a momentous day in British politics, with the climax of the ruling Conservative Party's leadership election. I called the Telegraph's Whitehall editor, Tony Diver, to tell us a bit about the UK's incoming Prime Minister, Liz Truss and get a sense of what this might mean for the UK support for Ukraine.
0: Well, that's right, David. Uh, the big news today for us is that Liz Truss has won the Conservative leadership race, which means that tomorrow lunchtime she will be made Prime Minister. Um, and obviously that has pretty significant ramifications for the UK's next steps in all areas of domestic policy, but also foreign policy and what she might do next uh, in terms of our diplomatic relationship with the Ukrainians and our, our possibility of uh, military support in, in either arms or, or financial ways. So that's 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 the big news this morning. Um, she won the race with a slightly less, uh, with a slightly smaller majority than we perhaps would have expected. Um, but she, with 57% of the eligible votes from Tory members, uh, she's she's now going to become the next Prime Minister.
1: Thanks, Tony. Can you tell us a little bit about her? Um, lots of our listeners um, all over the world, they might not have heard the name List Trust too often. So can you give us just a, a brief pressy of, of her career and her motivations and all, all of that
0: stuff? Yeah, well, Liz Truss is one of the longest-serving ministers in the government. In fact, I think she is the longest-serving minister in the British government. Uh, she's worked her way up from being uh, elected first as a backbencher, a number of different jobs, um, most recently as foreign secretary. That's her current job. But prior to that, she'd been justice secretary, chief secretary to the Treasury, international development secretary, all the within the government. Um, I think, well, foreign listeners might know her as the foreign secretary they might have seen her either at diplomatic summits uh, some of her key moments as foreign secretary uh, w- one of them for instance is her visit to russia where she had a very awkward meeting with sergey lavrov um but she she has been sort of at the forefront of the ukrainian effort on on the british side since the beginning of the war um and she'll be hoping to carry that with her into downing street tomorrow
1: so can you tell us a little bit about what, what has she said so far about, about Ukraine? Do we have a sense of how her policy may, may differ from from uh, Boris Johnson, the outgoing PM? How might she change how Britain is approaching supporting Ukraine in this conflict?
0: Well, I think we can probably expect her to be a continuity candidate on Ukraine to some extent, given that she has been involved pretty seriously uh, in the formation of Britain's response up until now as Foreign Secretary, her, together with Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, who is expected to retain his job as Defence Secretary once she takes office tomorrow. Um, but the, the Ukraine crisis has featured pretty prominently during the Conservative leadership race, um, and this trust has promised to be Ukraine's greatest friend if uh, if she was elected to be prime minister, so there's a sort of conscious effort by her to point out that she'd been involved in the response up until now. Um, she's also said that she'd be happy to step up the UK's uh, involvement in terms of in terms of financial support, and basically she's saying that she would like to continue what Boris Johnson's been doing. And we have actually had some words on this already from from Vladimir Zelensky, who said that he was concerned about the idea of Boris. And resigning because Boris Johnson had been such a support to the Ukrainian people, but that he hoped uh, the successor to him would uh, would be just as supportive. And you can imagine that Liz Truss probably does fulfil that role. Um, the other thing Liz Truss has said is that Zelensky is going to be the first person she calls once she takes office uh, tomorrow. There's always this slightly weird situation where world leaders queue up to congratulate each other after one of them is elected. Um, and often it's the United States that re- receives the first call. Sometimes it's France, sometimes Germany. But in this case, Liz She'll hold off on everyone else and call Zelensky first. So that's a sort of demonstration of what she sees as her commitment to uh, continuing Britain's small view Ukraine in the war.
1: And from your perspective, have you heard any whispers of a potential trust visit to, to Kiev? Or, or is that not been talked about just yet?
0: No, I don't think we know anything about that yet, Um, although it's worth saying that we don't usually know about prime ministerial visits to Kiev. Uh, They normally keep them a secret for security reasons. I think it's probably fairly safe to assume that she'll want to go there at some point, given that it was the sort of totemic moments of Boris Johnson's premiership when he went. Um, And we do have to remember, of course, domestically, Liz Truss will be on election footing almost straight away uh, once she gets into Downing Street. So you would have thought, given that that plays well domestically, that it's likely that she'll make some sort of visit. But no, we don't know anything about it yet.
1: Brilliant. Tony Diver, thank you very much. Thanks for coming on and just explaining uh, a, a little bit of uh, who Liz Truss is and how she might impact the, the the war in Ukraine from a British perspective. I'm sure that'll be hugely appreciated by our our, our, our listenership abroad. So thank you very much, Tony. Roland, uh, Oliphant, can I come to you next? Uh, we last spoke on Friday as a podcast. Uh, what are the major developments uh, in Ukraine over the over the weekend and today? Mm,
3: well, starting with the battlefield, um, the Herson counterattack, the Ukrainians are now claiming a degree of success. They're still keeping it close to their chests. Where is this? What exactly is going on? The um, the information blackout, the operational security blackout remains in place frustratingly. Um, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky in his uh, nightly address last night um, uh, kind of hailed the liberation of two settlements in the south of the country and a third in the east. So we think that means two on the herson offensive and one out in Donbass. Um, uh, he wouldn't name them, um, said he was getting good reports um, from his commanders. Um, He wouldn't name them, but uh, other sources, um, Ukrainian officials, um, open source stuff, and also um, pro-Russian telegram channels all seem to agree that uh, the Ukrainians have taken this place called Visokopilia. That's uh, a place, um, a village of about 3,700 people um, uh, at the northern side of that Herson pocket. um, So about 12 miles from the bank of the Dnipro River. Um, on that northern front um they've taken that town which is something they've been they've been pushing for for a long time um in the context of this war i mean look it's not a breakthrough but it's 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 not to be to be sneezed at um when villages change hands because as we you know as we saw in in donbass and elsewhere in this stage of the war advances are incremental um so it's, I don't think that's to be dismissed. It does suggest that the Ukrainians um, are making progress and, and to some degree, uh, this offensive is going their way. Now, the, the thing in the east is interesting. Um, again, no, no confirmation on the place, but other sources talking about a place called Azernia or Azenye. Um Now, that's interesting because that's on the other side of the Siversky Donetsk River, um, which we were talking about a lot um, back in May. Um which suggests the Ukrainians have have crossed the river um, on boats, um, done a little amphibious operation. Um, I don't know if they're hanging around there. It sounds, you know, it sounds to me a little bit risky putting up a, a new bridgehead. Um, could suggest the Russians have taken so many forces out of out of the east to bolster Kherson that um, they're struggling to hold, um, to really pin down that line. Nonetheless. Um, Look, the British Ministry of Defence today um, assesses that the... Uh, well, here's the quote. Um, Russia's main effort almost certainly remains its Donbass offensive. Um, that's mainly around Avdivka, um, which is near Donetsk, and Bakhmut, um, further north. Um, now, the Russians are in the suburbs of Bakhmut, and um, a place called Solodar. They, they have made progress. Um, it's slow progress. The Brits are saying, um, you know... They're, they're making about one kilometre a week. But it's clear the Russians are still still aiming um, to get further into the Donetsk region. They still retain this objective of uh, liberate, liberating, as they would call it, um, all of the Donetsk region. Um, and then they can say, we've done what we came here to do, um, which was to, quote-unquote, liberate what they call the, the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics. A um, couple of other developments... Um, We've had uh, the pro-Russian administration, the installed occupation administration um, in her son saying the uh, the referendum is, that was meant to happen, um, presumably a referendum on unification with Russia. That's being postponed indefinitely due to the security situation. Um, and on the energy front, uh, interestingly, we've just had um, Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin spokesperson, basically explicitly linking the shutdown of the Nord Stream 1 pipeline to sanctions. He's basically said, this is the way he puts it. Um, we've got one bit of machinery that's not working, that's holding up the whole thing, but we can't repair it because of sanctions because we you know, we can't get the parts and things like that. So basically, uh, Nord Stream 1 stays closed until your sanctions are lifted. That is the implicit threat. As always, um, there's a lot of wriggle room um, and it's never made absolutely um, explicit um, those are, uh, for my money, and I apologize if I missed something, pretty much the main developments so far today.
1: Well, thank you very much, Roland. Just one question from me. You, you mentioned in one of your answers um, about the finding information from the sort of pro-Russia Telegram uh, blogs. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about these? How how do these people? Who, who are these people? Because I've I've heard them mentioned several times in stories and as a, as a potentially reliable source when we're talking about what's happening on the battlefield. But who, who exactly are they? Who are they broadcasting to? And what's their relationship with with with, with Russian society? I mean, we, we're we're reading them. Are, are normal Russians reading them as well? Um, great question.
3: So there's a bunch of them. So in Russia, you have the mainstream media, right? Um, us. So uh, most of which is state controlled. Um, that's your official stuff. But then there's this kind of community um of war reporters, uh freelancers, bloggers, um some of them are anonymous. Um there's one called Rebar, which has um hold on, I'm just gonna look at him now. How many followers has he got? Six hundred and seventy-four thousand eight hundred and thirty-nine subscribers. Um so so big followers. Um, some of them are ex-soldiers some of them are explicitly linked to um, different uh, armed groups um, so the Wagner um, the Wagner mercenary group um, so private military company they call themselves um, has one there, there's a branch of, of, of Wagner um, called Rossicchu who, who have one um, and then you have these these kind of uh, personal branded kind of self-made War correspondents. There's um, there's a guy who runs something called War Gonzo. Um, there are reports he's actually been arrested in Moscow recently because, listen, this is unconfirmed, um, but it was going around that he had inadvertently revealed Russian positions on, on one of his videos. Um, and then you have the kind of the radical guys um, uh, like uh, like Igor Gherkin Strelkov, who is an FSB man who who basically ran. Um, that Russia's 2014 war in Ukraine has now become this kind of self-appointed commentator, um, would-be leader of, of the patriotic far-right, who's kind of a thorn in the side of, of the Kremlin, um, but they kind of tolerate him for for one reason or another. Now, the reason these guys are interesting, um, and there is a bit of um, variation depending who you're talking about, um, is that although they are absolutely uniformly pro-Russia, pro war um you know completely hook line and sinker we are fighting the Nazis all of that um we'll we'll march to Kiev blah 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 um they can be pretty critical right so they're not always on the leash um and there was there there was a bit of a um, a bit of a conflict blew up between them and the military high command um a few months ago um where one of them kind of publicly complained on telegram look like you know, I'm not going to be censored, guys. All right? You can't. You can't. We we can't have the MOD like telling us what we can what we can write and we can't write. Um, and then there was, uh, you know, kind of kind of very interesting debates on there about okay, these HiMars that have shown up. What are we going to do about them? Um, why is it our command haven't managed to do sensible things like, um, you know, um, disperse our command and control and, and and things like that and so on? And you, you get this kind of internal debate or discussion how much how reliable it is you know i i wouldn't want to take anything these guys say without um you know a pinch of salt and being able to cross-reference it with other sources but you know from time to time especially you know on the Hearst on offensive we've seen things that some of these accounts have put out um and then you you cross-reference it um and and it becomes, you know, you get a bit of consensus. So, you know, I think we can say um has been taken by the Ukrainians because, you know, we've got, you know, some of these guys kind of um, acknowledging that.
1: And if you spoke to, to, to Russians normally, would they have heard of these guys or, or are they quite sort of, you have to be, you know, active on Twitter or on Telegram, you have to be quite um, into your Internet culture. I mean, I'm just trying to get a sense of how, how well known are they, how embedded are they into the culture or is it or is... Or is it not? Is it very much, you know, you need your internet connection, you need to sort of know the places to look?
3: I think, I mean, my impression is, um, and, and as usual, I have to caveat, I'm not in Russia at the moment, so ask it, Russian. I, my impression is this is quite, it's quite a telegrammy kind of thing. Right? It's kind of beyond kind of, uh, be telegram, scrolling through. You, you want to be into someone who's really into kind of following the war, um, and you'll find yourself subscribing to all these things. Um, and and it, you know is that kind of community it's kind of online thing you could um you could get lost in um you know some people will know you know some of the some of the big name um uh russian war correspondents um uh, alexander kotz people like that um and and of course uh strelkov gherkin uh i mean he's he's he is his own thing Right, lots of people know about him because of his role um in 2014 um but, but on the whole um i'd say this th- this is for the war nerds um if you see what i mean
1: yeah absolutely um i guess my sorry this is absolutely fascinating so asking a few questions about it from 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 your point of view following these guys and reading this over over the past 6 months how how have they changed their positions during during the invasion? Have they got more more or less positive, more more or less critical? Um, what, what's your sense of of their of their view of the the invasion?
3: Um, so again, it's it's not uniform. Um, I would say they are uniformly patriotic from a Russian point of view. Um, you are not going to find anyone who's kind of questioning the the need for the war um, and things like that. Um, like quite quite an interesting kind of um capacity for like self reflection right and for i think i think what what gets up their nose is when they see the Russian Ministry of defense putting out something they know isn't true right because um a lot of these guys i think um you know i either have links with with soldiers or mercenaries or 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 are down there spending a lot of time on the front um and you know it gets up their nose when the Russian Ministry of Defense is claiming something um, that just, just just doesn't, you know, fit with what they're seeing and what the guys they know are going through. So there was one, um, there was one recent, I can't remember who it was who posted this. Um, but when the, when the Herson counteroffensive began, um, the, the Russian Ministry of Defense last week immediately said, OK, the Ukrainian counteroffensive has completely failed. And um, we've killed 12,000 Ukrainians and we've wiped out, you know, God knows how many tanks. Um, you know, uh, so on. If you believed it, that, that, you know, it it would have been an absolute disaster. Um, And there was one guy got, you know, got out there quite quickly, said, you know, let's leave that to people who, you know, want to believe in fairy tales, basically. Um, This is what I know happened. And and he he described, didn't go into details, he didn't reveal the exact position he was talking about, but he was talking about a very desperate defense um, by a group of... um, Russian special forces who eventually um, were were forced to fall back. Um, and he said, you know, you, you don't let anybody blame those guys unless you've been in that situation. What else are you meant to do? Just, like, sacrifice your life and be someone else's hero. Don't be dumb, you know. Um, so saying that they um, – he said these guys had to fall back. Um, he kind of obliquely – he strongly implied that, that some guys chose to stay there and die fighting and, and praise them and so on. But it was a, a very clear battle to um, the kind of the cruder um, propaganda being put out officially by the Ministry of Defence.
1: Well, thank you very much uh, for that, Roland. I thought that was absolutely fascinating. Um, Can I bring in Gareth Caulfield uh, now? Gareth, you've written a long read, which is on the Telegraph's website. I recommend everybody go and read it. It's called How the West is Racing to Stop Ukraine's Guns Falling Silence. You took a deep Look at uh, armament resupply, ammunition resupply, weapon supply to Ukraine from the West. Um, would you would you give us a sense of your your big takeaways from from your work on this? Sure, absolutely, David. So the problem, I suppose,
2: that Ukraine is running into is that in terms of arm supply, they've been. <clears throat> Very much dependent on, you know, once they burned out their own stockpiles fairly early on, they're pretty dependent on the West, by which I mean the NATO, main, mainly the NATO nations, uh, for replenishing their, their stockpiles of arms, of tanks, of rocket launchers, missiles, all that kind of good stuff. Uh, And a lot of that equipment, if not most of that equipment, has come from what we call Western ready-use stockpiles, which is the, in in simple terms, is what NATO keeps at hand in case Russia comes rolling over the eastern borders and into a NATO member state. Um, And it's all well and good that Ukraine has been supplied from those stockpiles. But obviously, as we're now, what, six, seven months into the actual war, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, we're now starting to look at a situation where those Western ready-use stockpiles have started to run down. And that has implications both for Ukraine, their ability to keep on fighting, to keep a, a steady supply going, uh, and also for the readiness of NATO itself. You know, what if? You know, and it's an unlikely scenario to be sure, but you always have to think, what if? What if the Russians decide that they're going to go helpful there and start charging over towards one of the eastern flank nations, such as um, Poland or something like that? So, what I was looking at this week, along with my colleague Howard Musto, who is Telegraph's industry editor. Uh, it is a state of those Western stockpiles and where we, you know, what the situation is when it comes to actually resupplying not only Ukraine, but the West's own. Now, it, it gets interesting because we know from I think the Wall Street Journal report uh, late last week, which said that US reserves of 155 mil artillery shells are running low. Now, 155 mil is one of the one of the more um, commonly used natures of ammunition, of artillery ammunition that is uh, in the Western artillery systems, you know, guns and armored vehicles and so on, supplied to Ukraine. And the Wall Street Journal report reckons that the Americans have so far supplied something like 806 thousand rounds of 155, which is you know quite a significant number. And they were quoting sort of U.S. defense officials there saying that this is a this is a um, you know, quite a high rate of expenditure you know we've, we've gone through all of our almost all of our ready-use stockpiles is the implication they were they're seeking to convey there uh, and that we're start to looking at the sort of defense industrial base to say well what can you do to replenish us so not only are our own stockpiles full but we can also continue supplying Ukraine with all of the uh, munitions particularly artillery that that they require so that's that's one of the sort of headline takeaways there is that we're looking at stockpiles needing to be replenished. And we start also looking in the long read at what what is being done about it. What are we doing in the West to spin up production? So my colleague, Howard Musto, spoke to BAE Systems. Uh, I know he's got a, a read on the way, I think for this weekend, possibly, about um, where BAE Systems is at when it comes to spinning up artillery ammunition production. Uh, Howard found that the Ukrainians, Ukrainian officials, are actually nosing around UK ammunition production plants now, specifically looking for foundries which are capable of making 155mm artillery shell casings. The the casings themselves are actually quite a high skill item to produce, which is why they they come into the UK amongst other sources to see if they can diversify their supply and keep that sort of constant flow of ammunition going to the Ukrainians. Um, but yes, they they're looking at so how found um BA systems I think it's was Washington is the factory up in and Weir um sorry I just had a little bit of a mental moment there yes so just just sort of coming down again um we think the Ukrainians I mean according to the Royal United Services Institute we think the Ukrainians are firing somewhere around 6,000 artillery shells per day um, which is quite the rate of consumption and again it's, it's something that we need to be considering in the west in terms of ramping up the supply and it's not only you know 155 mil it's also the m31 rockets fired by high mars weapon system which is the essentially a rocket launcher bolted to a lorry you know, shoot and scoot is the concept of operations there it's a very highly valued piece of equipment and the ukrainians have been quite vocal about asking for more high mars but also with more high mars comes requirement for more ammunition so Yes, it's um it's quite it's quite the in depth read, David, and I, I, could, as far as I could blather on for quite a while, <laughs>
1: but I'll pause there for a second. So that was that was great, thank you, Gareth. That was incredibly comprehensive. Um, in your article, you write about uh the the kitchen sink approach. I'm trying to put that in in, in quotation marks. Um, and this was a uh this was this this is how the UK's response was described. What 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 is the kitchen sink approach to, to, to supplying Ukraine, and what are the problems it's running into now? So what I called the kitchen sink
2: approach is where a lot of the NATO militaries of Western countries, I think there's 43 in total, not all NATO, but the vast majority are. Uh, When the initial invasion occurred, obviously, the Ukrainians came to the West and said, what can you give us help, please? We've got the the actual Russians invading us here. Uh, And the response from the West was comprehensive in all senses of the word. So, as well as giving the Ukrainians large quantities of, of what they needed in terms of you know, everything from helmets, body armor, missile launchers. I mean, we had you know, lots of talk about Javelin and n law I think the piece actually opens on a mention of Saint Javelin, the old um image that was going around right at the start, of the meme. Um, you know, small stuff like that, small arms ammunition, right the way up to artillery vehicles, armored vehicles themselves, um, what I want to describe as battlefield taxis. This, you know, the what happened there was that an awful lot of obsolescent equipment, by which I mean equipment, military equipment, which is still perfectly good enough for what it's meant to do, but it's not the latest, it's not the cutting edge kind of stuff. A lot of that was dug up out of storage, dusted off and sent to the Ukrainians. And while that's all well and good, and it gives, you know, they say, we need equipment, where West says, here is equipment, that's a good thing, that gives them the ability to fight. But when you start thinking in the medium and long terms, you run into the problem of sustainment. You know, how do you keep this equipment running? What are the spares requirements for the fleet of Husky armoured vehicles, for example, that the Ministry of Defence found out of storage and sent to the Ukrainians? When you've got several different 155mm artillery uh, systems, as the military calls them, you know, yes, it's a 155mm barrel, but you've got it strapped to one particular type of chassis, you know, one particular type of armoured vehicle, And you've got several of those different types of armoured vehicle in service. You know, you have a logistics training and a training pipeline there as well. You know, it's all well and good having the spare parts, but you need people trained to maintain them. They literally need to know what they're doing with the bits they've got. So that's what I mean by the kitchen sink approach is that we've given them absolutely everything we can get our hands on in the first instance. But then that raises the problem of keeping it all running and keeping it going. Now, there's been uh, some analysts thinking on this. I think it was the Royal United Services Institute's Jack Watling, Dr. Jack Watling, who pointed out that having lots of very similar but ultimately slightly different bits of equipment gives them, the Ukrainians that is, gives them a bit of a headache. Um, I think it says... Yeah, here we go. One challenge here, says Dr. Watling, is that NATO standardisation is not very standardised with different countries' howitzers not only having completely different maintenance requirements, but also using different charges, fuses, and sometimes shells. And what that means in plain English is that everything's subtly different. So if you've got one particular weapon system, one particular artillery piece, let's say, which has a very specific set of requirements, you know, you need to feed it exactly the right type of shell or the right type of uh, target data or, or whatever it is, uh, then you run into a problem where you may have something very similar in stock. Um, now, strange enough, is on a diversion. This is something the, the Soviet Union actually thought about quite in depth back in the Cold War. Um, it's not something the Russians did when it came to artillery and munition standardization was to specify everything as having a very different name for itself. So whereas in NATO militaries, you might have, I mean, we've been talking about a great depth about 155 mil artillery shells. You may have you know, 155 mil to uh, just picking out some, some hypothetical examples for the point here, you may have 155 mil long range, you may have 155 mil high explosive, you may have 155 mil that does something else in terms of an effect. And what the Russians did was they said, well, we've got all these different bits and bobs. We have constrict military forces, not particularly well educated and doesn't really, you know, grasp the differences between these things. We'll just give them completely different names. So that was that was one way that the Soviets sort of got around this logistical problem, is saying that, right, instead of 155 mil, it's 152 mil. It's um, you know, giving things a very, very sort of, visually, visually um, sort of written different names. But returning to the point about the kitchen sink um, and the Western supply situation in Ukraine, the, yeah, I keep saying it now, but the problem is essentially one of sustainment. It's keeping that equipment going. It's ramping up the industrial production. It's making sure that what the Ukrainians have can be kept running. Now it may be the case that the Ukrainians want to make some hard choices here and say, "Well, it's it's all very well and good as having these particular things, but actually, thanks very much, we don't need any more of those." Can you specialize on, for example, M one hundred and nine self-propelled artillery pieces, which are it is literally just an artillery gun uh, strapped to a a tracked chassis, which then drives around and, and fires and does all its good artillery type things. So, yeah, that's that's the the kitchen sink approach. It's it's been helpful initially. I'm sure the Ukrainians are very happy and very grateful to have all the equipment. But as time goes on, as the war goes on, it's now a case of can we start giving them lots of the same types of equipment and the same types of compatible ammunition to go with it to keep the Ukrainians fighting?
1: Just one question from me, Gareth. You touched on how the Soviets dealt with some of these issues. Um, but can we talk about the, the modern Russian military? We've, we've spoken a lot just now about how the Ukrainians are, de- are dealing with the supply issue. Do you have a sense of how the invasion has impacted and how sanctions have impacted uh, Russian resupply f- for their armaments, uh, weapons and guns, etc.? Yes. So
2: <clears throat> looking at it from the from the tech point of view, um a lot of obviously advanced military equipment has very high tech equipment embedded within you know there's computer chips, computer boards, complete integrated um, subsystems and systems, and so on and a lot of Western sanctions at the sort of beginning and the outset of the, of the war uh, and as time has gone on were focused on choking off that supply chain and to an extent you know what we in the West believe that that have been successful now we had a report a few weeks ago. From the Royal United Services Institute, pointing out lots of Western May computer chips turning up in Russian cruise missiles and uh, drones, drones and so on. but there was a recent report now unfortunately i don 't have the reference in front of me, but a very recent report issued this weekend, and I will tweet the link to it afterwards after this when to find it. Uh, and that report said that increasing amounts of Russian guidance systems, in particular, navigation equipment, were coming out, uh, you know, were being discovered on the battlefield, being dismantled. And they were finding very similar commercial off-the-shelf GPS equipment embedded within them. So, um, you know, sensors, GPS chips, all that sort of good stuff. And the, the finding of the report was that although the sanctions have constrained Russia's ability to get precisely what it wants from the global tech supply markets you know these supplies of sensors and computer chips and advanced high-tech electronics what they seem to be doing now is, is adapting to the impact of the sanctions and using commercial technology you know stuff that anyone can buy and which is intended not to have any any actual military application or any direct military use now that's a problem because there's only so far you can crack down on sanctions until there is there becomes the suspicion at least that what you're doing is is harming the russian civilian population which is not quite what sanctions are intended to do um it's it's all about striking that very careful balance between what can you what can you indict what can you put a sanction on what can you choke off a supply of to russia and stop their military from getting hold of it and using it and then sort of you know are we, are we actually cracking down on dual use or sole civilian use equipment because, you know, some of that might be turning up in Russian military hardware and that's something that, yes, we do want to stop, but also that same hardware could be being used for, by civilians for entirely innocent purposes, you know, for example, navigation while hill walking or something like that. So it's all very tricky. It's all very difficult to, to sort of crack down on those Russian supply chains and to ensure that their ability to actually keep building arms to fight the war is degraded. Um. Yeah. Tough situation. Very tough situation. But um, yeah, the Russians are improvising, adapting and overcoming. And that's possibly not what the West or Ukraine was hoping for at this stage.
1: Thanks, Gareth. Just I mean, just one more question for me, really. And I don't know if if Roland has any for you as well. But um, mine would be, I mean, you've you've sketched out the issues that after six months of war, the, the Western stockpiles are much reduced, that uh, Western countries and uh, defense companies are going to have to up their production in order to keep up with uh, how fast the Ukrainians are getting through shells and weapons. But what is that situation? Um, should the Ukrainians be worried, or do the next, you know, how do the next few months look like for for, for the supply issues?
2: What we're seeing, certainly, what's in in the long read, which I recommend to everybody listening, um, what we're seeing is that the West is ramping up production, and uh, that these difficult conversations are being had now ahead of winter. So um, I, I keep mentioning BAE Systems. Uh, BAE certainly has been ramping up production. Uh, we're seeing you know, the conversations being had within the US government as well about reopening um, old supply chains that are closed down. I think it's the um, Stinger anti-aircraft missile, actually. They, they've reopened an old production line for that uh, purely to service the demand from Western governments on behalf of Ukraine. And oh yeah, having mentioned that, that's an important point. There is a, a distinction as well between direct supplies to Ukraine and supplies from governments. Now, my understanding of this is, is counterintuitively <laughs> that it is easier for the Ukrainians to obtain supplies directly from Western governments than it is to, to go to the manufacturers. Uh, the idea being that the government-to-government government deal is, is, you know, governments can squeak their own paperwork out of the way and say, yep, carry on. Here's the contents of our ready used stockpile and we'll order more on your behalf. But if the Ukrainians go directly to manufacturers, then you start running into essentially bureaucracy and export licensing processes and so on, which is all well and good in peacetime, but maybe not so helpful at a time like now. <laughs> but the yeah, returning to the topic of the of the supply situation going forward, it's difficult. Um, obviously, you know, we, we're ramping up production. We, we're looking at reopening production lines. We're looking at scraping the international markets as best as we can for what's out there to keep the Ukrainians supplied and able to fight. Um, but as we get into winter, as the war drags on, it is a situation of well, you know, can we can we keep them sustained, and can we keep our own stockpiles full enough in case something unexpected occurs in the near future?
1: Well, thank you very much, uh, Gareth. Uh, Roland, just wondered if you had any questions for Gareth af- after that.
3: Uh, I think he's actually covered it very comprehensively, and it's something I've been kind of nagging at my. Um, the edges of my consciousness since this war began and we, we, we ran a few stories about it. I mean, um, I was speaking to Andrei Zagorodniki, a uh, former Ukrainian defense minister a few weeks ago, earlier this summer, um, about exactly this issue, right, of, of the West handing over, you know, here's half a dozen French howitzers, here's, um, here's half a dozen Australian armored vehicles, here's half a dozen this. And he said, well, we, uh, there's a term for this, for, for a place where you've got one one of everything. It's called a zoo. Um, and he said, it, you know, it's it's a real headache. There's there's spare parts, there's training, um, maintenance, all, all of this stuff. Um, so they, yeah, this this issue about rationalising supply. Um, also, you know, it feeds into the uh, to the one five two to one five five thing, right? So, so one five two mil was the um, uh, the standard um, Soviet artillery round, um, and early in the war, as we understand, you know, people. The Ukrainians and the Russians both had people and Western governments had people scour, you know, every arms dealer in Africa, um, you know, in and out of the Balkans, Southeast Asia, anywhere you could go, people were trying to outbid each other to get this stuff. Um and that, as we understand, um that's either run out or, or, or it's going to run out. The Russians probably have a lot more to supply their stuff. But um but that's one reason why this switch to one five five mil, um this, this NATO supplied stuff is is so critical. Um And and it's kind of reassuring to hear that, um, as Gareth says, you know, difficult conversations are happening. They are expanding production. They are talking about, you know, opening up supply lines. But I mean, when I, I, you know, when I um, was asking people about this, one of one of the answers I got was, well, you know, you can't just take the garden, you know, you can't take the railings off the park fence and um and you know three months later you've got a spitfire um it doesn't work like that um i I didn't know actually um i'm interested if you know anything more gareth about um what you were saying about the casings of a of a 155 millimetre shell being quite a high precision thing i kind of imagined that was something you could churn out quite easily um but the you know things like n javelin anti-tank missiles um especially these um these gimlers um, they call them the, the High Mars fire. I mean these are these are not easy things to turn out. It's it's precision engineering. Um so it's it's a challenge um to increase the production of that. Um and, and the only other thing I would add on on the on the High Mars thing, so uh the Gimlers, I was told, um, there's just not that many of them in the world, um, and America has most of them, um, but it is the weapon they need um to as, as the insurance in their back pocket, should anything happen anywhere else in the world, um, you know, we've all got our eyes, half an eye on Taiwan, things like that. And that's one reason why you've got, um, going back to my conversation with Andrej Sokorodnik back in summer, or any other Ukrainian official you care to mention, or any Ukrainian frontline soldier for that matter, or Ukrainian civilian. You know, the message is always the same. Look, Come on, we're, why are you just giving us just enough to kind of draw but not enough to win, like well, what's going on um, and I think the basic answer is this this logistical question so I mean um, you know, I, I, I will definitely, I haven't read it but I am going to be reading Gareth's long read um, with great interest because I think it's a it's a really really important um, one of the most important issues um, in this war.
1: Thanks uh, Roland Gareth, anything from you on that or shall I ask for your final thoughts?
2: Oh, I'm happy to, to expand a little bit on Gimlers uh, the please uh, please. guy the uh what was it guided multiple launch rocket system gmlrs um the ukrainians have a handful of those as, as Rodan says of u.s in origin um they're very keen on getting their hands on gimlers and on HIMARS, uh two of the most effective as my, as my military sources have described this to me uh grid square removal tools so this is a an artillery system which you can point at a particular area of of ground and it will destroy everything within that area um, supply of those is critical um, it's you know the, these are frontline weapon systems for many NATO armies these are sort of state-of-the-art technology and while the Ukrainians are obviously very keen to get their hands on them it's a case of you know as I was speaking about earlier balancing the supply can we give them enough to fight an effective war without compromising our own cap- military capabilities too much just in case something else happens that needs a military response from the West. Um, ammunition supply for those is also, you know, I've, I've spoken at great length about 155 mil, but also the M31 rocket fired by, or I should say launched by Gimnas and Mars. That's also one of the potential bottlenecks in production that the West has been looking at. Um, it's, Yeah, it's one of those situations where lots of conversations are, so we're told, being had in the background, where contracts are being signed, where stockpiles are being replenished and immediately shipped down east. But we'll see in the coming months how how that's going to turn out.
1: Well, thank you very much, uh, Gareth, for joining us today. And thank you, Roland. Can I just ask for your final uh, thoughts for our listeners? What should uh, they be thinking of in the days to come? Um, I would say... Let's look at...
3: <laughs> OK, let's look at Liz Truss's government, shall we? Um, I, I don't see a massive change in direction. Um, I think, you know, as Tony was saying earlier, continuity candidate. But, oh, my God, is she, is she up against it? Um, it? It is the perfect storm. Um, war in Europe, um, related energy crisis, related inflation crisis. Um, I think it's going to be... Massively, massively challenging, and, and and the reason I'm talking about domestic British politics is because once again, as I always drone on about, um, this winter is going to be the test not just for us, um, but for the for the American public, for European publics, um, and for all those governments that have um, chosen to back Ukraine um, in this war, and and the Russians, the Kremlin, is absolutely banking on the idea that um, we are not going to get through this winter without our resolve cracking in one way or another. Um, so that's a thing on my mind this week.
1: Thanks, Roland. Gareth Caulfield, would you like the final words? Yeah,
2: I think I'd, I'd echo everything Roland says there. Liz Truss, as the the new Prime Minister, has an awful lot to contend with, um, any of which in isolation would have been quite the big quite the big thing. But um looking at the Ukraine situation, certainly she'll be continuing those conversations about supplies, about um keeping those stockpiles full, about signing contracts. And we know that she's she has mentioned a potential rise in UK defense spending, whether that's going to feed into the Ukraine, whether that's you know essentially money earmarked for Ukraine via that government-to-government sales rate I mentioned earlier. Too early to tell just yet. But if it is, if that's not if that's coming out of the main MOD budget rather than um what they used to call urgent operational requirements, which is essentially money gifted to them straight from the Treasury. Um, too early to tell, I would say, but it's it's a difficult situation. As winter starts setting in and as the Ukrainians start crystallising what they need more of and what they perhaps need less of, I think that's going to be an interesting point because it's going to start, I suspect, seeing more and more increasingly modern weapon systems being supplied as those global stocks of the older soviet era stuff which has already passed out of use as Roland's mentioned but also the sort of the the diverse range of western systems trimmed down so we can realistically keep supplying ourselves from our direct stockpiles so i suspect we're going to see more more of the of the modern weapon systems coming up ahead
1: ukraine the latest is an original podcast from the telegraph to stay on top of all of our ukraine news analysis and dispatches from the ground Subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message, and we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Gemma Farrell.